0: Live from Sydney, this is Yitzhak Toho, building Jerusalem. Our guest today is David Sandwell. David is the director of interreligious engagement for the ADL uh, academic work includes a commentary on 1 Thessalonians, for the Jewish annotated New Testament. And he's one of the editors of Christianity in Jewish Terms and Irreconcilable Differences, uh, an investigation into Jewish and Christian relations. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Well, thank you, Itzi. It's great to be here.
0: I wanted to start with like this one thing I, um, I heard of yours uh, from a couple of years ago. It was an address you made to the uh, I'm going to get the title wrong, the ACCC, C, the Council of the, Churches. The World Council of Churches. W, w- WCC. WCC yes. the, um, the World Council of Churches. You gave this address where you were like, look, great work on a lot of things, but I'm not happy with this, this and this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was, it seemed like a, I want to say like a surprisingly bold um, speech. Like very calm, very gentle, but, um, but, but. Uh, And it seemed to me that, like, that was, like, Jews wouldn't normally talk like that in front of councils of churches for most of history. Like, something has shifted.
1: Well, I I think that um, something probably has shifted. Uh, First of all, that uh, by and large, uh, relationships between the Jewish world and the Christian world have changed a great deal since the end of the Second World War. Um, an organization like the World Council of Churches uh, in 1948 stated that anti-Semitism is a sin against God and man. Um, uh, if we look at the uh, Roman Catholic Church uh, in 1965 in Nostra Aetate, they also uh, repudiated anti-Semitism and said that uh, neither all of the Jews at the time of Jesus or thereafter should be held responsible for the death of Jesus. This is the repudiation of the deicide charge. Mm -hmm. And so um, in those intervening years, there has been uh, a change in the relationship, a, a development of a relationship, even some friendship, and when that happens, it makes it possible to have some more difficult conversations.
0: It's it's uh, it's interesting. You you mentioned the um what revoking of the deicide charge, because like deicide, you know, obviously means the killing of a god, mm-hmm. which is I guess the like, what what sort of Christians could could conceivably hold you responsible for. I remember thinking as a um, as a young man that it was it was sort of disappointing to me that that charge had been um, revoked because, like, obviously, it was the source of a lot of horrible stuff through history. But at the same time, it was kind of cool to be considered a god killer. Like that's a that's a you know it's a it's a Norse sort of title, you know.
1: Well, I, I, I guess, but the history of how that charge has been used yeah. um, and the implications of it for Jews throughout history, you know, you can draw pretty much a straight line from the emergence of the idea that the Jews killed Jesus to the Nazis final solution. You really? Yes, now I'm going to let me qualify that. Sure. Okay, because, um, and this is very important that the history of Christian anti Judaism, and this is not original to me, others have said this as well, but the history of Christian anti Judaism was a necessary but not sufficient cause for the Holocaust. Right. right? Nazis uh, built on the anti-Judaism that was at that point already deeply embedded in Western culture. Mm -hmm. They added their own elements to it. They removed some of the specifically Christian elements to it, but had it not been for that history of Christian anti-Judaism, really beginning with the deicide charge, the Nazis wouldn't have had any any material with, with which to work. They wouldn't have even... You know, all of those ideas about the Jews would not have been in the air, right?
0: So, but it wouldn't it's, have been it, anywhere near as easy as it was to get everyone to go along with it. Correct,
1: right. correct. That negativity, those, that bias, that prejudice, yeah. those, those images, um, where you know the identification of the Jews with Satan and so forth. Those were all part of, of um, uh, again, of of the sort of the warp and woof of Western civilization, and they're still in there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the One of the differences uh, between Christian anti-Judaism and Nazi anti-Semitism, and you see I'm using slightly different terminology, mm-hmm. is that for uh, uh, medieval Christianity, what, whatever, the um, individual Jew could if he or she wanted to sort of escape the the problems and the limitations that were placed on Jewish life and the prejudice by converting. Hmm. But for the Nazis, it was not based on faith. It was based on the pseudoscientific theories that arose around race in the 19th century. And so it was genetic. It was biological. And so for the Nazis, it didn't matter whether uh the individual himself or herself was Jewish, as long as they had one Jewish grandparent, they were considered to be, you know, to have that taint of Jewish blood. Mm. And so um so that's a that's a significant difference.
0: Right. But it's it, um what do you what do you make of like this this idea? I think it's from Freud that um, part of the cause, or perhaps one of the, the main cause for um, gentile anti-Semitism, is a sort of um, an anger at the Jew for giving the Gentile morality. Uh,
1: yeah, I guess I don't put a whole lot of stock in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that. Um, if you look at the development of Christian anti-Judaism, if you look at the, um, uh, if you look at say the language in the new Testament, uh, which is not anti-Semitic because most of the books in the new Testament were written by Jews and for Jews about Jewish subjects. Right. Right. And so, um, uh, uh, Jesus is part of that world of Second Temple Judaism. He was a, a a miracle worker, an itinerant preacher, and a healer. And we have other examples of that. Uh, we read um, we read about them in Josephus. Uh, some people point to uh, Honi the Circle Drawer as a, as a, another you know a similar type. Obviously, not making the same claims sure. that Jesus did, but in this world. Um, you had people like that and and Jesus and all of his followers were Jewish and the arguments that they that Jesus had or that you see portrayed in the Gospels so say Jesus arguing with the Pharisees about what you could or couldn't do on Shabbat right it's not that Jesus didn't celebrate Shabbat he did it was simply an argument about what is or is not permitted right right but when you move forward two or three centuries and Christianity emerges as a Gentile religion, no longer part of the Jewish community, Um, people didn't understand that these were internal Jewish arguments. Hmm. They saw them as uh, Jesus was outside of Judaism and opposed to Judaism. And these people were his enemies. Hmm. And, um, And then you take all of the... Um, uh, The strong language in the religious rhetoric, some of which comes out of the prophets. I mean, the prophets are certainly not easy Mm. on Israel, Mm. right? And so uh, if Christians wanted to find texts that showed that the Jews were disobedient and rebellious against God, they could go to to the prophets to find that, right? And then you find language, for example, uh, in the Gospel of John, where you uh, find the phrase, the synagogue of Satan, for example. Now, this is the way that people talk to one another. In the, in a, even within the Jewish community, they would use this this sort of strong language. But it's one thing when it's internal, and it's something else when it's external. And then you see how these ideas develop. And so you get to um, uh, the Middle Ages, for example, Where um, uh, Jews are supposed to have horns because they're connected with the devil. You have this image of something called the Judensau, the the Jewish pig, um, where you see these, and these are, uh, there's one on the church in Wittenberg, which was Martin Luther's church. It's a pig, and riding on the back of the pig is one Jew, and there's another Jew. suckling from the teats of this pig and there's a third you'll pardon me eating feces from the jews anus um you know these are who the jews become in the imagination of the middle ages jews are blamed for the black plague uh you know and and so um uh you know you 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 have instances of uh Of preachers on Good Friday talking about how the Jews killed Jesus, and then at the end the congregation would leave the church and go to the Jewish neighborhood and beat people up. You know, so um, uh, uh, I I kind of lost my train of thought. (laughs) Where we started from there, but. uh, I, I uh, Freud. There we go. So <laughs> I, I think it has. Uh, 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 I mean that some of that may be in, in, in the background for right. some. But but I look more at at what people were taught, you know, what they learned, what the images were. Hmm. Um, uh, and remember that in the Middle Ages, a lot of people were illiterate, and so they were they depended on uh, the artwork. Um, uh, in 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 the churches, in the stained glass, in the carvings on the outside of the ch- of the churches, uh, many of which again showed um, uh, the, the the Jews as being sort of vile and, and despicable and uh, not to be trusted.
0: Hmm.
1: So uh, I I would look more at these centuries of this what has been called the teaching of contempt. And how that has become part of of the culture.
0: Sure, it's interesting I, I, how you um, you point out that there's a lot of really strong language um, in the New Testament, but it's a it, it takes on a completely different tilt when you think of it as um, you, a Jew, Jews condemning other Jews for like non-Jewish behavior, as opposed to someone outside the Jewish community condemning the Jewish community. Because mm-hmm. like I I've noticed the same thing that that you're talking about here, which is that the sorts of strong language that Jesus uses um, when talking about or when talking to uh, the Jews of his time is like really, really similar and very much in the tradition of like the books of prophets. Like how is it that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah would, you know, and so on were talking to the Jews? Same sort of language. Um, and I, I found the same thing in, um, uh, when, when I finally prevailed upon to like sit down and actually start reading the Quran where it's like in Al-Baqarah, there's a, the line is something like, um, for Allah says to the Jews, for indeed I have chosen you and elevated you above all peoples, and why then do you turn your back on me? Mm-hmm. And so like that, that sort of vibe is like, it's a lot more, the, 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 the thing is a lot more like maybe a parent chiding away with child rather than like uh, people uh, spinning like fiery rhetoric against an enemy so as to dehumanize them and like make them the subject of violence.
1: And there is also cherry-picking of verses.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, so one of the things we mentioned, Nostra Aetate. Hmm. one of the things that we find in Nostra Aetate, which is unusual, is that it doesn't cite any of the church fathers from the early centuries. It jumps over the tradition and goes back to Romans chapters 9 to 11, where you find um, Paul saying things like, has God rejected his people? no
0: hmm.
1: no um, and and um, saying that I, I don't have the I'm not going to remember the quote exactly but the, you know the Jews for the to the Jews are the covenant and the prophets and so forth so you know um, uh, it, it, the the ability to use or misuse text in this way hmm. um, especially when you think about the Uh, the early church trying to define who they are. You know, uh, Jesus has, uh, uh, to the extent that that the material in the Gospels is historically accurate, Jesus has a career, he has uh, a group of followers, um, they have what, you know, whether they believed he was a, a teacher or a prophet or perhaps the Messiah, these are all good questions, And then he is arrested and he's executed. Hmm. And um, at least some of his followers drift off, but others have this experience of the resurrection and that points them in a certain direction, but they still have to figure out, well, okay, what does, what does all this mean? What does this mean in in terms of how we understand who Jesus or the Christ is? um, how are we supposed to worship? How are we supposed to observe? What are our scriptures? Who's part of our community and who is not part of our community?
0: Hmm.
1: And um, as they do that, as they try to develop their identity, one of the things that they that that and this happens is, is it not only in among sort of emerging Christianity, but they define themselves in, an, in a, to an extent over and against. Others. Right. And the closest other there is the Jews. Right. Now, there's an analogous thing that goes on uh, with the rabbis, right? If, if the crucifixion of Jesus was a crisis for his earliest followers, the destruction of the temple was a crisis for the Jewish community. Sure. How, what, you know? What does it mean for us to be Jews now if we can no longer go to the temple and offer the sacrifices what you know um, how do we worship right um, and indeed part of the genius I think of the rabbis was their development of a system that enabled Judaism to not only survive but to thrive despite the loss of its temple
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: but they also had to define themselves you know if you take if you think about it, during the first century, during the Second Temple period. So we've got your Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, uh, the Qumran community. You've got, again, these individual teachers running around. And it was all fine to have that kind of variation because they may have disagreed about this or that, but on Pesach, they'd all line up together with their goat and their sheep, and they'd go up to, mm. you know, and, and um, like the pilgrimage festivals, are exa- ex- exactly. Ideologies. Exactly, you know. We yeah. might be fighting about interpretation, but let's all go, you know, and celebrate together. And you know, you. Uh, uh, so, after the destruction of the temple, as rabbinic Judaism uh, begins to assert itself as the the dominant interpretation, you see a lot of this um, variety and pluralism fall away, uh, not because they were necessarily anti-pluralistic, but because for survival it was necessary to unite, right? And it was necessary, you know, you have to draw boundaries. So if before the destruction of the temple and thinking about defining oneself over and against the others, it was okay to have a Jew who had some belief about Jesus and still be part of the community but as it as we they became necessary to define what was a uh, lowercase o orthodoxy, mm. there had to be a boundary and one of the boundaries was uh, that Jews who professed some kind of belief in Jesus were considered out mm. of the community
0: and that that sort of habit. Uh, I I think like it has it, it reverberated and it has like lesser echoes, but throughout history, like every so often, someone will show up and declare himself the Messiah, and then like people will either get behind him or not, and mm-hmm. and like there'll be this big sort of rabbinic decision as to either we're backing this guy hundred percent or the people who back him are no longer part of our community. Correct. So that yes. okay, so that sort of mechanism happens. I heard that there was like a big discussion around this time um, as to whether or not um, it was important for early Christians to circumcise. Yes. And that Mm -hmm. that seems to have been like a big flip switch point, a big flip point.
1: Yes. Well, some of this goes back to Paul, uh, who uh, believed that um, after Jesus's resurrection, that he was going to return, but he was going to return sort of at any moment. Mm-hmm. you know today most christians uh, believe that jesus is going to come at some point in time but they're not looking at their watches mm-hmm. you know paul really believed that um uh that the second coming was imminent and that there was pressure to bring people into the community as many people as possible and uh, needless to say the uh Issues such as circumcision and kashrut uh, and so forth were an obstacle Mm. for Gentiles. And so, um, uh, and Paul, and there's been a lot of scholarship about this recently that that has suggested that um, Paul uh, taught that uh, the faith for Christians was sufficient for Gentile Christians were sufficient, but he thought that Jews still needed to keep the law. Really? Yes. there is. Where do you a, see this? Well, um, you'll see this in the works of, say, Mark Nanos, um, and uh, I believe even N.T. Wright. Um, uh, I have a colleague named Amy Jill Levine, who's a Jewish New Testament scholar, and she says that uh, Mark uh, uh, Mark that that the um, that the Paul described by Mark Lanos was so Jewish she'd let her daughter date him. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe it was Raymond Brown, a, a Christian scholar, um, who said that if Paul had had a son, he would have circumcised him. Hmm. So Paul didn't have any sons. Paul didn't have any children. No.
0: Okay. No. So, so the argument is, and this is like based on extrapolation from the text itself.
1: Correct. From yes. The various
0: letters that Paul wrote, we're trying to figure out like what his views were, and
1: exactly, okay. exactly. And when he talks about uh, faith versus law, and you know those sort of things.
0: And so he seems so. You, and you find these arguments persuasive that Paul thought that Jewish Christians should be circumcised. Um,
1: well, Jewish Christians probably would already have right. been circumcised from birth, but yes, if they yes, that the law that Jews who were followers of Jesus were still obligated to in the covenant, um, you know, to follow halacha basically. Mm. Yes. I mean, that
0: like to me that seems like really, really obvious, just based on. Um like the opening couple of pages, where he's like, "I come not to change one jot a whittle of the law." Exactly. Like that's pretty explicit. I don't know what else you want to do with that.
1: Well, right, and and here's uh, again, um, uh, he he heals somebody and said uh, who I think had leprosy and says, "Now you need to go to the temple and do the sacrifices, right? Mm. The appropriate." Uh, things. So he
0: w- The Thanksgiving sacrifices. Right, right,
1: right. You know, whatever the sort of the purification, the specific purification oh, rites. okay.
0: So it wouldn't be a Torah, it would be a so no, uh, hola, would it be an hola? A chathas? I'm not yeah. good at sacrificial law. But there right. is a sacrifice, right? Right, the, the right. Halacha, that, it, yes, you'd have there. to
1: go to the priest and you'd have to offer something. And, and that was part of the purification ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, the... One of the... One of the famous scenes in the Gospels is Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple in Jerusalem, Mm. right? And um, some people read this as his rejection of the temple altogether. But a different reading is um, that, in fact, the problem was not with the money changers themselves. It was where they were. You needed to have money changers so that you could change. You know, if you came from Babylonia or whatever, you needed the uh, the temple shekel, right? Mm -hmm. So it was necessary for business. But these folks had set themselves up in the wrong part of the temple, and they were, in in a sense, um, uh, perhaps polluting it or affecting its holiness. Um,
0: That being the like wrong part being the courtyard, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, along yeah something like along those lines. Yes, so. Um, So rather than him doing this because he rejected the temple, he in fact was
0: protecting the temple. But I mean, I think like the the simple reading of that verse has to suggest that. Like obviously if he's upset with people who are doing business near the temple and he's flipping that up, like I can't understand how you could see it as anything other than he's protecting the temple.
1: Well, right. But... um, what happens about 40 years after Jesus is crucified? Right? By my temple. Exactly. So right. it's, the, the temple is destroyed, and that's referenced at uh, in the end of... I'm pretty sure it's the Gospel of Mark. If not, it's in Matthew, where at the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain at the Holy of Holies is ripped. Mm. You know, so the destruction of the temple in the Christian imagination, as Christianity develops, is a sign of God's rejection of the Jews. Mm.
0: Interesting, mm. interesting. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm. Uh, I remember I read through the first two and a half Gospels when I was mm-hmm. introduced them with like a really serious, um, very religious Jewish scholar, mm-hmm. um, and I would, I would stop and I, like I, my, my print like. My, um, I guess my conjecture at the time and like this might be you know it's probably trivial to a scholar like yourself but for me it was it was like quite the quite the chiddush quite the like original idea my idea was like no this guy here was a guy who was like being a a a good Jewish boy to quote the uh you know the phrase like he was actually trying to do things the right way and in accordance with halacha and um, I read through it with this with this scholar, and, and I would stop him and ask him like, what do we like? Has Jesus done anything wrong at this point? Has he broken the halacha in any way? And you know, even even through the disputes with the Pharisees about the Shabbat and so on, like again and again, his his his, his response to me is always, I don't see the problem. Like, hmm. in, the, in the actual conduct of the man himself, he seems to be a halachic Jew who's running around starting a Muslim movement, telling the other Jews to do Judaism right. And then somehow from that, via the process of Chinese whispers and, and, and uh, I guess like letter writing and then um, just uh, uh, what convention, just convention after convention of cardinals, we end up having something which is completely different.
1: Well, yes. And some people would make a distinction between the religion of Jesus, that is what Jesus believed and how Jesus practiced hmm. when he was alive. And the religion about Jesus that developed after uh, his execution and after the the experience of the, the resurrection, whatever
0: that was. Right. I, I mm-hmm. really I, I heard you use that phrase yesterday, and I thought that was really wonderful. The religion of Jesus and the religion about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So uh, to be clear, it, like the religion of Jesus is basically just like Second Temple era Pharisaic Judaism. Yeah, pretty much. Because okay. I, I haven't seen anything else to, to contradict yeah. that. I haven't seen anything happen. Well,
1: and uh, again, uh, uh, Amy Jill Levine will say, why, does Jesus, why do we see Jesus in conversation and perhaps conflict with the Pharisees? Because that was the group that was closest to him.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, it, it, when the, it wasn't necessary for him to have arguments with people with whom the, the differences were quite apparent. But those where they were close, that's mm-hmm. where they had to... Um, you know, to to make clear what was the difference.
0: When we say okay, so when we say the Pharisees, this is something I want to I want to get to. Like, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about the same people who are like listed as sages in the Gomorrah? Are we talking about a different group of people? Um.
1: So, the uh, I mean, essentially, we're talking about the, the the same people. Whether we're talking about the same individuals mm-hmm. that. That's a different ma- uh, matter, but it's, you know, it's clear that um, because we read about it not only in, uh, in the New Testament, but we also read about it in Josephus, mm-hmm. um, that the Pharisees were one of the sort of schools of Jewish thought at that period of time. Now, again, Josephus is writing for um, uh, a Greek reading gentile audience and it may and so his description may have been tweaked somewhat for that audience and because he was sort of an apologist he was trying to in the wake of the destruction of the temple which made the jews not so popular in the in the greco-roman world he was trying to present them in a positive manner so whether to present
0: who the Pharise-
1: jews in general and so he talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes sort of as if they were Greco-Roman philosophical schools. Mm. So, Who's, this? Who's this? Josephus. But Josephus, okay. Um, uh, but clearly, because, you know, the way that they appear in the New Testament literature in Josephus and then the rabbinic literature, they were very much part of um, this sort of, uh, what I like to refer to as this bubbling cauldron of religious ferment that was Mm. Second Temple Judaism. Um, uh, My my sense is uh, that um, one of the things that happens after the destruction of the temple, um, and you can see this in uh, what happens at Yavne, is a a, a sense that, um, well, these different arguments that we were having while the temple still stood, we could afford to have them. But now we really need to come together. Right. And so um, the, the, uh, I think that that there's a big influence of Pharisaic Judaism on Rabbinic Judaism. The Pharisees had this idea of the traditions of the fathers and so forth. And so we see that. Carried through, um, but you know the rabbis also have some their some influence there from some of the other groups, but certainly from the Sadducees. Oh, so
0: you hang on. So you're saying the Pharisees and the rabbis are two separate groups? Um, I'm saying
1: that the um, uh, the Pharisees are sort of the the precursors of the rabbis, right? You know, and 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 they kind of merge into each other. Are okay. they or the the uh, rabbinic Judaism, again, emerges out of Second Temple Judaism and the Pharisees are probably one of the major influences.
0: Right. Okay, so that's what I'm seeing too. And like mm-hmm. I'm trying to get my head around. So something that I'm trying to clear up for myself is is if you look at like the uh, gospel accounts and take them as like sort of face value, because I know mm-hmm. like none of them were written at the time, so we don't know what was changed around and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to sort of square the account that seems to emerge from that, from the Gospels themselves, from, like, the earlier Gospels, not even the letters, just, like, Jesus walking around doing stuff. But he seems to be, like, up against a, like, an intractably corrupt society in some ways. And, like, that doesn't show up for me in the Mishnah. That doesn't show up for me in the Talmud. Like, I see enemies of, like, the same people, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, if you want to say, I don't know, Jesus was like yelling at the Sadducees, like, all right, yeah, cool, because, you know, we know the Sadducees were like, or, you know, our perception of the Sadducees is they were priests who were using their positions for for monetary gain, political gain, what have you, and sure. But like the the Pharisees themselves?
1: Well, first of all, the Pharisees are not um, presented only negatively in the New Testament. Again, Mm -hmm. that's part of the cherry picking that went on in later generations. Paul identifies himself as a, as to the law, a Pharisee.
0: Hmm. You
1: know, um, Joseph of Arimathea, who provides the burial place for Jesus, is a Pharisee.
0: And Jesus says. Who is the subject of uh, the Blake poem, um, Jerusalem? Right. Did those feet in ancient times yes. wander on England's mountains green?
1: And. Um, uh, uh, you know, he says at one point that the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. Mm. So he has this uh, you know, he didn't like hypocritical Pharisees. So you is, know
0: so who are the hypocritical? Like there are these people who are yelling at Jesus in the in the in the Gospels. Who are these people? Are they like, are they a different group of Pharisees to the sages of the Talmud? Are uh, they the same group? Bit. No, well,
1: I um I mean, I guess I don't know would right. be the, the honest I first see. answer. But like um, we're trying to guess. But them, again, no. not all not all of the Pharisees are going to be exactly the same. They're, sure, they're, sure. Clearly, there were some who were interested in listening to what this this guy Jesus had to say. If you think about the um, the parable, of what's known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. okay, it says it says uh, the the um, I believe the text says, you know, that this doctor of the law or this lawyer rose up to challenge Jesus. And uh, okay, so a lawyer, right? Okay, uh, nomikos, I believe, is the Greek from nomos, meaning law, right? So who who's going to be a lawyer in the first century? Well, he's a palmilacham. Uh, this guy is a student of Torah, hmm. right? And he wants to understand how Jesus understands this pasuk, this verse. What does it mean um, uh, to love your neighbor,
0: Hmm.
1: right? And so Jesus tells a story, right? And he tells the story about a man who was going down to Jericho and he's beaten up by thieves and left on the side of the road, right? And um, uh, first a priest who's going down uh, walks by and sees this injured man and and ignores him and then a Levite walks by and ignores him and then a Samaritan comes and and helps him right and so Jesus says who is you know who in this story is the neighbor hmm. right um, uh, you know it's it's a lovely story. Again, I'm now I'm switching topics a little bit on you here, but if we go back to how that becomes interpreted, um, uh, one of the ways that it's interpreted is, uh, well, let me back up for just a moment. Um, I think what, you know, if, if you are hearing Jesus tell this story in the first century, and you hear him first talk about a priest then talk about a Levite, who's gonna who do you think is gonna come next?
0: The natural next thing is an Israelite.
1: Exactly. Right. So um, uh, you know, I in storytelling things come in threes, sure. right? So you're listening and you know, okay, yeah, you had a priest Levite Samaritan? That's gonna get people's attention sure. because who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were these people who had their who claimed to be the true Israelites with with the real temple on on Hargerizim. Right. So, um, uh, you know, the idea that the Samaritan is going to be the good guy in this story is really a wonderful storytelling technique. Right. So, again, we talk about what happens to these texts in later generations. And some people say, well, the priest and the Levite. Wouldn't didn't want to touch the man because he he was he was bloody and he that would have made them ritually impure and so forth and it's a critique of the Jewish purity system and uh, and and so forth. Well, okay. First of all, that doesn't apply, right? Because right? If somebody's injured, you have to help them. Number one, right? Saving
0: life like overrides everything else.
1: Exactly. Number two, they're going. Down from Jerusalem, which means they were not headed up to the temple. And when they were to come back, they would probably have to purify themselves anyway. Right. Right. So it's not about.
0: And the, I don't think blood alone. Oh, it does rendue do somewhat impure. Yeah. Like, with, right. So. Um, uh, does it? Does the blood of a wound render them impure anyway? I don't think so. Yeah, I'm, again, I'm
1: gonna I'm I'm gonna pass on right, that one because kind of, I don't have my resources right at yeah. me. But and and it's certainly because it wasn't because it, it, he was the guy was dead. Because even there, there's a, an obligation, right? If he were dead, they'd be obliged to, to stop and do right, the him. mitzvah. Yeah. right? So in in in, in either case, um, it had nothing to do with the fact of, of their roles as priests and Levites. Sure. It had more to do with. Um, the idea that um, these were people who were supposed to be uh, religious exemplars, mm. you know, and they should have done the right thing. They weren't the neighbor. It's the person that we all hate who showed what it really meant to be a neighbor, mm. and that's a really interesting teaching, yeah. right? And it wasn't, um, and it wasn't an indictment of all priests were all Levites, just these particular priests of Levites.
0: The next, the next Twitter campaign hashtag: Not all Levites. Right, <laughs> oh boy. Here we uh, go. Mm-hmm. But it's right, so it's like you can see how later on, it will, you, by people who were sort of allergic to the temple faith and allergic to Judaism would we'll see this as like another one of like, oh, you see Jesus beating up on them Jews who were the bad guys, but mm-hmm. actually it's obviously like a contextual story where he's saying, here is the priest, and the Levite, who really should know better, who really should be That's right. doing God's work, and they're not.
1: And then it gets connected to this idea of legalism. Right. You know, of, of Judaism being a, a formulaic, cold, legal religion that would prohibit somebody from helping somebody else yeah. who was in
0: need. Oh, it's interesting that I think like Islam even inherited that from Judaism. Like I heard a, um, a Sufi teaching that, um, uh, what is it? Judaism is is um, sharia but no tarikat, um, like basically law but no spirit. And Christianity is tariqat but no but no uh, sharia, it's spirit but no law. But Islam is, is tariqat and sharia. Yeah, but so, but like, where do they get that idea? You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in like with the way you tell the story. There's a guy at the beginning, a no, uh, someone from Nomos, a lawyer, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if this is um, uh, if this is related to what's said in, in the Mishnah Avot. It says, "Don't act like a Don't act like a lawyer in a in a legal case." And it could mm-hmm. be that like the whole practice of being a lawyer was something that the Pharisees were against. This could have been, like, specifically someone different?
1: Well, I think it has more to do with um, the fact that uh, in Greek, uh, you know, Torah is translated as, as law.
0: Right. So it's a scholar of the so law. So that's why I
1: say, you know, yeah. that's why I say, no, he's not a lawyer. He's he's one of the de Hachami, or, you know, the student of the sages. And here's Jesus, who in many ways is... Uh, you know, in the mode of a sage, even if he wasn't necessarily part of that, that tradition. Right. You know, he's he's addressed as rabbi
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the gospels, uh, even though I would argue he he wasn't a rabbi in that he didn't have rabbinic smicha. Right. This was in a, the
0: beginning where he talks about him getting like a really good education as a kid, but it doesn't go into like a lot of detail. Um. I mean. It,
1: he he uh, there's uh, there's no evidence that that and, and that again there's to the best of my knowledge there wasn't uh really any smicha until after right. the destruction of the temple to begin with okay. but the term rabbi simply as a, an honorific my master my teacher hmm. was part of that world so that he would be uh that he would be called Addressed by that uh, by that term by some of his audience or some of his followers makes perfect sense.
0: Sure, of course. Um, I want to I want to ask you about um, the ways in which uh, Jewish Christian relations have been getting better, and mm-hmm. the ways in which like maybe they haven't been as or <laughs> not as fast as they could, um, mm-hmm. because like you mentioned Nostra Aetate*, which is this like really really um, groundbreaking document in the sixties where the Pope of Rome put out this stuff. He's like, listen, can't we all just get along? Maybe, uh, all right, fine, maybe Jews aren't responsible for killing Jesus. Let's, just, let's try and work this out a bit. Okay, fine. And then a few years ago, there was a follow-up document that was even, in even stronger terms, um, it was based on this passage from Romans 11. which right. yeah, the,
1: the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. the bit where
0: he says, uh, like it starts with a rhetorical device. Could you imagine for a moment that God hath hath turned aside his chosen people? Correct. I say to you, obviously, this is not so for the gift and calling of God irrevocable. And indeed, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their children, they are the very, uh, what is it, the very uh, trunk of salvation. And if any Gentile achieves salvation, it is only because he's been grafted onto the trunk. Mm -hmm. He's a branch Mm -hmm. grafter. I'm like, come on, just read that and then try and be a Christian. I'm like, Really? exactly All Right. but they, they they took this verse and they read a very very nice letter about how um uh, about you know the importance of being nice to Jews and like a couple of things that really came out of that which really struck me um, was uh, a one was it, it pulled it pulled back the um, doctrine that Jews need Jesus to go to heaven mm-hmm. so it seems like and the way they phrased it was really interesting. It's like, look, everyone needs Jesus to go to heaven, but Jews don't. And, like, that's a mystery, but what are you going to do? I,
1: yes, All exactly. Right, yeah. So mm-hmm. Jews go to
0: heaven without needing to to Christianity. And sort of a corollary of that is there's an injunction for Catholics to no longer proselytize to Jews. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading these, and I just had my, my boots probably rocked off, like just incredible. Like, I, what do you make of that, both as a scholar and as someone who's in the in the field of you know anti defamation?
1: Um, well, I I think that it is uh, an incredible sea change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, It's unfortunate that it took so long, and it is unfortunate that the Shoah, that the Holocaust had to sort of serve as a catalyst for this. Um, But um, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, not only was there the 1965 document, and then the 2015 document, but there were other documents in between that, uh, including especially uh, one entitled uh, "We Remember: A Reflection on the Shoah," hmm. in which they, uh, in which the church talks about the Holocaust um, and how the teachings that the Christian teachings that contributed to uh, 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 the Holocaust are, um, uh, are are not acceptable teachings. Um, you had. Uh, In the year 2000, you had John Paul II uh, making this historic trip to Israel where he uh, went to the Kotel and placed a prayer in the Kotel in uh, uh, talking about uh, essentially apologizing for the sins of the sons and daughters of the church against the Jewish people, going to Yad Vashem, um, uh, greeting Holocaust survivors, I mean, in some ways, I think those images are as powerful as the documents themselves. Sure. Sure. Um, there's also this wonderful picture of when John Paul II visited uh, the great synagogue in Rome, and he's greeting uh, Rabbi Toaf in front of the synagogue. They're, they're, they're reaching out to embrace each other. Um, this is unheard of, um, you know, my, my grandfather, who came to the United States from Tsarist Russia, hmm. um, uh, once came to, to visit my family. And my father said to him, they're, they're doing a, a production of Tevye and his daughters, the, the Sholom Aleichem stories that were made into Fiddler on in the Roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you want to go see this play? And my grandfather was, was uh, very excited because he was a big Yiddishist and he loved sure. Sholom Aleichem. My father didn't tell them that it was being produced at a Roman Catholic women's college that oh, had a boy. wonderful theater department. <laughs> okay. And so they walk into the foyer of the theater before the show, and my grandfather sees these priests and callers and nuns in habit, and his response was fear. He said to my my father, you know, get me out of here, because he was frightened. Mm. You know, this was in
0: America. This and... was in America. Mm. You
1: know? uh, but that's what he brought with him from, from the old country. That, right. that Christian clerics, clerics, and his experience was probably with Russian Orthodox, not with Catholics, but you know, it didn't really make that much difference. Um, these were people to be feared. Yeah. And so here you see the Pope and the chief rabbi of of Rome embracing each other. Mm. And now Pope Francis, who has this incredible relationship with Rabbi Avram Skorka. They've written they they had a, I think a television program together and they wrote a book together. And now you see this picture of, uh, of of Rabbi, there's this picture taken from the back of Rabbi Skorka with his arm around, you know, the Pope's shoulder. So not a formal embrace, but just they're buddies, right? They're friends. And I think they got they they initially got together over uh um uh whether you call it football or soccer but yes. you know uh, um those things so the the um the well, idea of, well, I'll, I'll do a little bit more biography if you will sure that my father was a rabbi and was a scholar of uh both Tanakh and the New Testament and he wrote books like a Jewish understanding of the New Testament we Jews and Jesus. We Jews and You Christians, he wrote a book about Paul, and he was a pioneer in post-World War II Jewish-Christian dialogue. So I grew up in a home where, you know, if it was Shabbat dinner and there wasn't a minister or a priest or a nun at the table, it was unusual. Right. Now, I didn't think anything different. You know, I was a child. That's just the way it was. But very few of my Jewish friends were having those kinds of, you know, Shabbos dinners or, sure. or Passover seder. But my father, uh, as a child, growing up in St. Louis, he and his Jewish friends would have to take a long walk home because if they took the direct route, they'd walk by the Catholic parochial school and they'd be beaten up. You know, and he, um, though uh, uh, he was a well-recognized scholar and he was invited to um, uh, talk in, in Protestant churches and Protestant seminaries and so forth. But not until Nostra Aetate was he ever invited to a Catholic institution. After Nostra Aetate, he said it was like the floodgates opened. And he had these uh, wonderful relationships. He received two honorary degrees from Roman Catholic universities. And then I ended up having uh, a chair in Jewish studies at a Roman Catholic seminary co-funded by a Jew and a Catholic. Hmm. And I've, now I'm going to show off. This was little, the
0: Catholic Theological Union. That's
1: correct. Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. And now I'm going to show off a little bit. I've met Pope Francis five <gasps> times.
0: Wow. You know, I, kinda, I really wanted to ask you this, but I was like, is it sort of nap? It's sort of nap. I'm not going to ask. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you all did the information. You know, so if you What's think, he like?
1: Well, he's very genuine. Yeah, um, I haven't had the opportunity to sort of sit down at the table with him and, and talk at length. But I've been in both some private audiences and from public audiences. And, you know, when you shake his hands and you talk to him, he looks you in the eye. Um, he has a sense of humor. Mm. Um, and, uh, but the point that I wanted to make about this is that if you think about in three generations of my family... Right. From my grandfather, who was frightened by Christian clergy, to my father, who um, uh, uh, was well regarded in, 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 in the Christian world, but sort of bridged this before and after sure. period, to me having this chair co-funded by a Jew and a Catholic and, and, and meeting the Pope. And, and here's the thing about it. My father was pretty unique in his day. Mm. I'm not that unique.
0: Mm. You know,
1: I have many colleagues who teach in, in Catholic and in Protestant seminaries, and I have all kinds of friends who have met the Pope and you know, know the Pope better than I do. So think about how that world has changed in just three generations.
0: It's amazing. That's incredible. It really feels like progress.
1: I, it, it is progress Gee. and and i, I I'm sorry just no, sure. one, one more thing uh, Israel and the Vatican established diplomatic relations in nineteen ninety four in June of nineteen ninety four so twenty five years ago this week oh wow, and there was off <laughs> it should be for much profit yes, there was an event in Rome at the great synagogue in which uh, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, who is the Secretary of State for the um, Vatican, gave a talk, and I'm again I'm not going to be able to cite this precisely, but he thanked the State of Israel for making it possible for the Church to carry out its mission within the State of Israel, and it's not its mission to convert people, right. but its mission to serve its own parishioners wow and he also talked about um, the common task of fighting anti-semitism and other forms of hatred oh. now you know that's the kind of thing my grandfather never could have imagined
0: no no chance No. even so, for your father that must have seemed far off though.
1: yeah well um, uh, yes um, but but he saw those he saw those shifts mm. he saw those changes
0: what do you th- what do you do you know much about this um uh, this sort of dis- this rumbling discontent by hardline cardinals within the Vatican against Pope Francis. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I I know a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, in in any um, um, you know in in any religious community. There are going to be people who have different uh, uh, opinions and uh, different views of what is the the proper way. And some of it has to do, I suppose, with, with theological issues, and then some of it has to do with administrative stuff and perhaps even power politics about sure. someone in this office and someone in that office. Um, uh, uh Pope Francis has um, shied away from a lot of the sort of imperial trappings of the papacy. Mm. So he doesn't live in in the same sort of uh, lovely apartment in the Vatican that some of his his uh, um, uh, some of his predecessors have lived in. Right,
0: he sits on a simple chair instead of a golden throne. Right,
1: exactly. And and I think some people find that threatening and then his you know the the boy they should meet jesus they friend real friend. <laughs> you know and and of course the, the the church is dealing with very difficult issues around um uh, uh abuse by by yeah. priests and i think that is also threatening to people and there, you know of course and there are people who think he's not doing enough so um do you think he's doing enough um, you know, I, I, I really don't know.
0: That's not, yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, I don't know how anyone in, in, in fact,
1: that. I, to be honest, I, I, I don't think it would be my place really to comment sure. on that.
0: Of course. Um, but let me, let me ask you this on on the subject, because I'm really interested in the papacy as this sort of, um, this sort of conceptual, um, sort of uh, this conceptually positive thing. So like, I guess we have this conversation here in Australia every, Every couple of years, about whether or not we should become a republic or, or stay a constitutional monarchy, because technically the Queen of England is still our, you know, is still our um, head of head of state,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and you know she doesn't do much in our in our day to day life. But you know, here's oh, and that's not on this one, but you know, mm-hmm. here she is on here she's she is on, on your currency, yeah. right?
1: Of course, and mm-hmm. and like, and when I was in synagogue here on Shabbos, they read a prayer for the Queen.
0: Oh, how lovely. Yeah. Uh, that's 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 right. So that spirit exists. And I'm like, you know, people, some people are for it, some people are against it. I myself, I'm like, I'm really into constitutional monarchy. I think like partly because I'm like a huge nerd and partly because like, you know, I'm a sucker for pomp and circumstance. But partly because like... But have you ever seen The Crown, like this Netflix series, The Crown? Yep. Yeah, so I really like that. And and like one of the things that happens there is like you see these, these meetings every week where sort of the prime minister shows up and just like explains himself to the queen and she just sits there and listens. And she doesn't really have that much power to, to change his mind or push him around or anything. But I think mm-hmm. that process, I mean, that, that's what the word, the phrase prime and minister, right? That's what that means. Like, the, the first prime the first among those who serve the mm-hmm. prime minister and the fact that he shows up and like talks to the monarch and explains himself to the monarch and justifies his decisions from the point of view of service like that that alone is probably healthy for him and for the country and mm-hmm. the fact that the people have someone to look at in times of crisis who's just calm they're like oh well you know she's calm I guess we could just be calm and that sort of helps mm-hmm. have some breathing space to get through you know because she's not being buffeted by the winds of the next election cycle and all this stuff. And I feel like that's, that's all that's really healthy. And so I think about this in terms of like the Catholic church too, which is that like the role, the fact that there's a guy in the role of Pope who's just like sitting there being, you know, as they the, the continuation of the, the kingdom of St. Peter or what have you, but like the, the Catholics sort of have a guy to look up to and go, Oh yeah, that's, you know, keep on being a good Christian Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that might be really healthy and to have to have someone like Francis in that role seems really, really healthy because he seems like an actually good dude. Um, But I guess I'm just kind of concerned that like it maybe this is, you know, my own, you know, uh, indentured Jewish fear seeping out. But I I, I fear that it could be rolled back all too easily.
1: Uh, I don't think so. Good. I
0: mean, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> from your words, can, from your understanding, right? you, right?
1: um, you know the the, um, and it's not and it doesn't all rest on on, on Pope Francis either. Um, sure. The reforms of the Second Vatican Council, which went way beyond Nostra Aetate. I mean, Nostra Aetate is just a very small part of of much broader reforms of the Church. Right. right? Um, of Vatican
0: II, as they call it, that, yeah, which right. I love, so, like the, the second, idea. That yes. Vatican has a sequel. <laughs> more guns, <Right>. more explosions. <laughs> um, uh,
1: it, it is, it is the official doctrine of the church. Yeah. And groups. There's, for example, there's a group called the um, Society of of Pope Pius the Tenth, um, which is. Um, uh, currently, uh, and again, I'm 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 not an expert on the canon law here. So, it, my, for my Catholic colleagues who who may hear this, please feel free to correct me. But um, they, angry they, emails they, heading they, away. Yeah, <laughs> what's new? they are not that. This organization um, has rejected um, at least many aspects of the Second Vatican really? Council. Are they allowed to yeah. do that? Well, that's the thing. They are, not, they are officially not in communion with the church. Oh, so you have a breakaway Catholic church. Um, they, there have been attempts to try to bring them back into communion with the church. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, nobody likes to have this, this kind of schismatic stuff going on. But they've been very clear that um, they cannot come back in unless they accept the Second Vatican Council, including Nostra Aetate*, hmm. and I've been in meetings uh, with what's known as the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um,
0: I love that. And uh, what? What? what in, well, you it used, what had, at
1: one point in time, it used to be known as the Inquisition. But
0: wow! Okay. When did that change? Is it fairly recently? <laughs> um,
1: you know, I don't. I don't remember. But let's just say that the Inquisition is not great branding. Um, no, uh, but these are these are the people who are who focus on uh, on doctrine, right. right? On what is appropriate doctrine, and I've met with along with some of my Jewish colleagues, I've met with their leadership, and they have been absolutely clear that there's just no way these folks are coming back in unless they accept the Second Vatican Council, including Nostra Aetate. Mm. Um, uh, this you know this is the this is the direction that the church has gone these are official authoritative documents that are the official teaching of the church hmm. um, and um, it would take um, I believe again uh, my Catholic colleagues could answer this better than I could but it would take, I believe, a convening of another council that would have to over. I, I just don't. I just don't see it happening.
0: Right. It's a, it's a. It would be a big deal for it to happen. It would
1: be, and um, you know, one of the things about the Second Vatican Council was that uh, when Pope John the Twenty Third convened the council, um, his uh, he, he talked about opening up the windows of the Church to the modern world. And um, uh, it really was uh, uh, the time when the the church sort of fully embraced modernity. Now, you know, not all aspects of modern culture, mm-hmm. but the ideas of modernity. And um, uh, certainly, there are more liberal Catholics and more uh, uh, conservative Catholics, and there. You know, we, we tend to think that uh, those, you know, on the outside, we tend to think that all the Pope has to do is say jump and all the Catholics jump and so mm. forth. It's not quite that, that, that simple. Um, you know, there are politics and, uh, uh, and there's serious theological debate, but um, I, I don't know anybody who believes that there's, that, that there's any chance of a, of a return to pre-Vatican II Catholicism.
0: Amen. Well, look, I, I just want to, um, I'm reminded of something that I think Martin Seligman once said. He was asked about the state of psychology in America, and they asked, I think the story goes, that he, um, he was on, on TV, and they said, look, we want just, very quick, very quick spot, just in one word, what's the state of the psychology today? He said, good. I said, okay, Mr. Seligman, we've got to run that again. That didn't, you know, that wasn't quite, have two words. So he says, okay, not good. And he said all right professor said really we're going to we'll give you three words what's the state of psychology today and he said not good enough mm-hmm. and, and i get that i get that sense very much from talking with you both both today here and and also like over the past past couple of days um that you know for, that all three of those things seem to be true right now with christian jewish relations they're good and, and they're not good but really they're not good enough
1: yes i think that's i think that's fair um I think, in, um, and we've been talking mostly now about the Catholic Church, and that's only uh, about half of the Christian world, sure. so um, uh, we, we might wanna move on to s- some other denominations, but um, I think, uh, and again, I've some of my colleagues have said this before I have, that uh, by and large, um, in terms of the Vatican itself, it has done, uh, the sort of the theological work that it needs to do. We have these library of documents talking about Jewish-Christian relations. We have the speeches that have been given by the popes, we have the actions of the popes going to Israel, going to the synagogue, and so forth um, that have set the direction. Now the question is, you know, or where the action really is now is going to be on more of the local scene. Right. Are these things being taught? in seminaries around the world? I mean, clearly they're being taught um, in seminaries, in uh, communities where there are Jews, because there's, you know, people have the opportunity to meet and and, and it becomes a real issue. But are they being taught, say, in seminaries in Africa or Asia or parts of South America where there aren't Jewish communities? In a sense, has it, you know, uh, uh, the word has gone out from on high, mm. hasn't gotten down to the grassroots. Right. So actually, I'm going to have an opportunity in September uh, to teach for a week at a Catholic seminary in Harare, Zimbabwe. Wow. So... You'll be able to test test this out a bit. Eh? Uh, yes. Well, but also, I mean, and, and I'm going to be team teaching with a nun, you know. So it's not going to be like... The Jew's going to walk into the room and say one thing and then maybe walk out and someone's going to say something else. But the students are going to get to see the two of us interact. That's cool. And I'm really excited about that. Do you
0: have someone on, on hand to film it by any chance? Uh, cool. I, I think it would be really cool to film it
1: well I actually have a friend who's working on a documentary and she's hoping to be able to do that know, she needs to raise some money uh, there is an issue about some political instability there right now I hope that doesn't uh, get in the way but yes I, I agree yeah. that, that uh, I mean I'm, 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 I'm really excited about it it's going to be a, an incredible experience for me as well not to mention the fact that there is, uh, in Harare, Zimbabwe, there's a synagogue of Lemba Jews, which is one of the, the African groups that um, uh, believes that they are descended from the ancient Israelites. Oh. So that's a whole other piece that intrigues me as well. Sure. And you get to meet with them too.
0: Worth, worth looking into. I'm I'm wondering because you you mentioned there are a lot of other um, you know the Catholic Church is only you know half the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot going on with, with different Christian groups in America today, and I remember you mentioned something to me yesterday, Mike. Um, you were telling me about all the different the different kinds of Christian groups being having very different dynamics, mm-hmm. especially with when you when you go to meet with them.
1: Yes, well, and um, by and large. Um at least in the United States, um, and um, I think in many parts of the world, um, most Christians um, have, uh, uh, you know, repudiated anti-Semitism and, uh, and they don't teach um, uh, necessarily negative things about Jews. It doesn't mean that they're always aware of some of the things that they say that they've received, because again, this stuff is deeply embedded in the tradition. Sure. But if you ask them, they'll say, no, anti-Semitism is a bad thing and we need to be in relationship with our Jewish brothers and sisters and, 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 and so forth mm-hmm. where it becomes problematic, uh, uh, especially is around issues of uh, the state of Israel Um. There are some uh, uh, in the Christian world who are very supportive of the state of Israel, especially in the evangelical community. Mm -hmm. And then there are others in the Christian world who are uh, very harshly critical of Israel. Um, um, And I think we have to keep in mind that there are Arab Christians living both in Israel Mm -hmm. Um, what I would call as is Israel proper and in the t- in the territories, and I'm not trying to make a political statement. Right. I'm just, um, but the situation of Arabs in general is different uh, if they're citizens of Israel and and if they are living in in the ter- territories for sure. Um, um, and um, just as we as Jews are concerned about our fellow Jews in the land of Israel, they as Christians are concerned about their fellow Christians in the land of Israel. And that's perfectly legitimate. Um, The challenge is um, how they express those concerns. Um, And um, some of them, uh, when they start talking about the state of Israel, um, fall back on some of the rhetoric from classic uh, Christian anti-Judaism, and talk about uh, the relationship of Israel to Palestinian Christians and more broadly Palestinians in general. I mean, you know most Palestinian Arabs are Muslims; only a few are, a small minority are Christians. In the way that, um, uh, in the way that the Jews in the New Testament. Were, are perceived to have treated jesus mm. so um you you find um uh for example uh, uh in one of my sessions yesterday at limoud i put up on the screen an image of an israeli soldier with a bloody bayonet and then there's a there's a um, it, it it looks like a, a Pietà. Pietà is a representation of Mary holding the body right. of Jesus, and the caption was something along lo- along the lines of "Don't kill him again." Oh, so jeez. Yeah. Well, exactly. This the, and 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 so, um, you know, you 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 bring these kinds of of images uh, into the uh, and this, you know, this kind of rhetoric into this political debate, hmm. and um, it becomes—it's it, a real problem. Um, you know, uh, it, we all know that criticizing policies of the state of Israel is a perfectly acceptable thing to do.
0: I, um, I, I, uh, I really like the way you phrased it. Um, you phrased it in in your two thousand sixteen address the World Council on Churches. Criticizing the policies of the state of Israel is not merely legitimate; it's a, it's, it's obligatory, and no one that's, does it better than than Israelis. Right, and Jews.
1: I have a friend who says it's, it's, it's the favorite Jewish sport, and we have teams and uniforms and so yeah. forth. And yeah, we do. You know, if you want to see criticism of Israel, all you need to do is open up the pages of the Israeli press. Sure. So, um, you know, the the problems come when the when the criticism is is unfair. Uh, but especially in terms of Christian criticism, when it is couched in language that reflects this this traditional Christian anti-Judaism. Mm. And there are some for whom the whole idea of the state of Israel is illegitimate. Um in part because perhaps they're post-nationalists who don't believe that, that the nation-state should exist at all, and they're going to start with the nation-state of Israel, right? right? Um, but, and, but then, you know, the, um, uh, the idea that um, uh, Jews were, are supposed to be eternal wanderers, uh, this is what comes out in, in uh, some of Augustine's theology, um and so the return of Jews to sovereignty is something that Christian theology didn't expect. That was only supposed to happen with the second coming, mm. right? Actually, we have a similar issue in Jewish theology, right? In 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 that some people, you know, that when when were, when was there going to be a reestablishment of of a Jewish nation in the days of the Messiah and when there'd be a Davidic king and so forth. And so there are um, uh, people in the Jewish community uh, not a huge number but there's some in the Jewish community who for religious reasons feel that the state of Israel is um, uh, is a rebellion against God, a demonstration of a lack of faith and it is, in fact preventing the coming of the Messiah. Right. You
0: know
1: um, uh, and um, uh, you know the the um, Christians it's perfectly legitimate for Christians to be concerned about their brothers and sisters in the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. And it's perfectly legitimate for Christians to talk about those concerns and to talk about, you know, in Christian theological terms. You know, there this is what you know, as Christians that that's what some Christians do, right? But when it crosses that line into anti-Judaism or anti-Semitism, that becomes problematic. Uh, When it turns into the denial of the very right of the state of Israel to exist, now, I consider that to be anti-Semitic,
0: okay?
1: Um, Criticize the policies all you want, let's have a debate about uh, uh, you know, about a, a two-state solution. let's talk you know what we can talk about all of those things, but to say that the Jews as a people have no right to national self-expression, uh, that I think is, is, is outside of the bounds. Sure right. And uh, you know, I, I think to when, when, when Jews say that the Palestinians aren't a people or the Palestinians don't have a right to their own state, I think that's problematic too. You know, And this is, again, this is my personal view. I think we have two peoples who are deeply rooted in this land and have legitimate claims to it. My claim as a Jew to have a connection to the land doesn't negate the claim of the Palestinian. Hmm. And the Palestinians' legitimate claim shouldn't negate mine. Now, how do we work this out? How indeed? Right. I mean, I wish I knew, but um, uh, you know, I think if 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 we could get more people on each side to accept that reality, and then sit down and say, okay, how do we make this work so that everybody gets something? Nobody's going to get everything.
0: Right. Right. No. If everyone's if everyone's unhappy with the deal, that's a good sign that it It will be well. Sure. Sure. I, well, this is this is. I mean, uh, this is a really good segue into the sort of growth area. Um, I'm mindful that we only have a few minutes left, mm-hmm. um, but I, I before before uh, we part, I would like to get your thoughts on this because you mentioned that, um, I, in a sense, the new the new growth area for um, for interreligious engagement is is between Jewish and, and Muslim organisations, between Jews and Muslims, mm-hmm. um, and you know if you if you look at the the Jewish Christian um, interactions, as you say, like just within your own family, you can see the success. Mm-hmm. You can see this has gone well. Things of Baruch Hashem are going better. They should continue to get better. Uh, but Jewish-Muslim relations, maybe you could say they're at an all-time low, and we're just only starting to figure out how to have begin to have those conversations. So, what what are some what are some like just some your early thoughts from in the field and your guidelines for how to do it right? Well, I think
1: one is. Um, To take a long view uh, and to remember some of the history.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: I think sometimes people exaggerate uh, how good relationships were between Jews and Muslims, say, in the Middle Ages. Mm. But by and large, it is fair to say that Jews generally fared better under Christian under Muslim rule than they did under Christian rule yeah
0: that definitely seems to be the evidence and,
1: and some of that has to do with the fact that um, uh, the image of the Jew as, as, as we were discussing about it earlier as the the you know responsible for the death of Christ identified with the devil and so forth and and really as the polar opposite uh, to everything that was is good about Christianity and sort of bad about Judaism and and you know Jews as the antichrist right? right no one else plays that role in sort of the christian imagination now under islam Jews were considered along with christians and zoroastrians as people of the book I believe so. Huh. I mean, again, if I'm wrong, I will retract that, but okay. they, they um, uh, uh, and they uh, so, and in fact, they were in a, held in, in, in greater respect than um, you know, uh, pagans and idolaters. Sure. Okay. So you don't have broadly in the history of Islam the same you uh, uh, um, uh, the same demonization of Jews that you find in Christian history. Um, so um, uh, we need to remember that
0: right. Uh,
1: c- clearly the founding of the State of Israel um, uh, has has become a significant uh, challenge in Jewish Muslim relations. sure. Uh, again, Muslims have every right to be concerned about their brothers and sisters living in Palestine and in, in, in Israel, just as we are worried about, you know, our, 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 our friends and relatives. Sure. Um, uh, you know, there are, um, uh, again, some religious issues there about uh, from, I think, from a Muslim at least from some Muslim perspectives, again, there is no one, just like there's no one Christian perspective, there's no one Muslim perspective. But what it means for a, uh, a piece of territory that had been controlled by Muslims no longer to be in there, you know, that's a, that, that can be a problem. Mm.
0: Um, but... The, the doctrine of Dar al-Islam come under threat there. Correct,
1: correct. Correct.
0: The idea that once, once, once territory has been held by the Ummah, it remains forever Muslim territory and can never be ceded. Correct,
1: yes. Do so, you
0: have any, just to, just to narrow in on that for a second, do you have any possible theological work, work throughs there? Is, uh,
1: you know, I don't. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I know plenty, I mean plenty, I mean I don't know all that you know of the 1.4 billion Muslims right. in the world, you know I don't know all that many, but I know um, uh, uh, I have many colleagues who um, uh, recognize that, uh, uh, and and perhaps they're not, you know, maybe their interpretation isn't strictly. Uh, you know, again, lowercase o, orthodox Islam.
0: Lowercase a,
1: hello. <laughs> so, um, but they, um, uh, you know, they recognize that uh, the, the Jews not only have the right, but also have the need to have have a state and all. And um, that, uh, they want it to be a state in which their co-religionists are treated with, you know, fairness and justice and have freedom and so forth. Um, um, and, uh, you know, so so not, you know, clearly not every Muslim believes that, um, you know, the Jews have to be thrown into the sea. Hmm.
0: Um,
1: uh, you know, they, they, they look at the world perhaps through their Muslim eyes, but also through modern eyes and through their understanding of Jewish history. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So, you know, and especially I think for Jews and Muslims who live as minorities in other parts of the world. The United States is my experience, but I would think also in in Australia and so forth, where both communities are minority communities.
0: Throughout Christendom.
1: Exactly. And indeed, um, have some of the same concerns. Um, uh, You know, uh, the the guy who went into the Etz Chaim Synagogue in Pittsburgh, you know, uh, and killed 11 Jews on a Shabbos morning, um, in his manifesto, wrote about the fact that he did this because Jews, and he mentioned specifically an organization called HIAS, were uh, were bringing immigrants, including Muslims, into America. Mm. You know, the the people who hate Jews often hate Muslims as well. And so, in many societies, we have a we we have a common interest, like,
0: like the neo Nazis or the Shia. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, um, you, know, uh, so, no so okay. you know, so, we, so we, we have shared interests or, or uh, issues of religious freedom in the United States yeah. um, and um, I believe that we should be able to form coalitions and work together and in fact we're quite successful at that. Right. We have very good relationships with many Muslim organizations. There are challenges. If things get hotter in Israel and Palestine, it has an effect. But, um, uh, you know, my organization and I personally have very good relationships, not, you know, not with everybody, but with some people. Hmm. And in some ways, um, uh, there you know, it's not like we have to overcome 2,000 years of uh, Anti-Jewish rhetoric from Islam, in the same way we do from Christianity. Right. It, it's, it's a different creature, and we can look back and say, you know, some people hold up the Golden Age of Spain, for example, as 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 an ideal. Uh, again, sometimes it's a little more idealized than it re- really was, but it gives us a model, yeah. and it gives us a way of saying that this is not inevitable.
0: Right. This isn't, and this isn't, you know, as deeply ingrained in the past. I remember a, a friend of mine characterized it like this. He said, "If you go to Europe um, and you just say like, go around the cafes and whatever, they'll, you sort of get this sense from, from a lot of the Christians there, like they'll be very polite with you as a Jew, but you know they'll look at you with these sort of these, these cold eyes and like you can sort of see like deep in there like this sort of hatred looming. He says you can go to an Arab country and, and they'll, they'll, they'll yell at you and they'll be angry at you, uh, but the moment you, know, you go as their guest into their tent the are all warmth and, and joy, and mm-hmm. like that, that melts away. So, like, we just sort of have a very different thing to work with. It's not like a history of, of like of, of deep hatred and antipathy. It's more mm-hmm. like a very hot, very present, current conflict. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. Hazoi. Well, David, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you. And uh, many blessings with your work and, and with yours. <laughs> <laughs> and may we may wear many good things. I hope so. I hope oh, so. Thank you. Me.